Thank you, and today we continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We have concluded chapter number 5, moved into chapter number 6, and chapter number 6 has to do with relationships. You recall that it began with the subject of giving alms. Now, the giving of alms speaks of my relationship to others. As a believer, if there is someone who has a need, then I am to be sensitive and minister to that need. So the giving of alms then speaks of my relationship to other people. And then Jesus moves from alms into prayer. And prayer speaks of my relationship to God. As a believer, I am supposed to spend time with the Father. So the subject or the focus in prayer then speaks of my relationship to God. So alms deals with my relationship to you. Prayer deals with my relationship to God. And today we have come to the subject of fasting, which speaks of one's relationship to self. You see, fasting is a private and personal issue. And it is, it has largely been ignored in recent years. In fact, from 1861 to 1954, there was not one book published on the subject of fasting. And to be candid with you, probably had it not been in the Sermon on the Mount, I would not be dealing with it today. That's what happens whenever you commit to going through a portion of the Bible. You have to deal with what is there. So obviously this is not autobiographical for me. It is here, and so we're going to deal with it. Even though it is largely ignored, it is nevertheless important. In fact, John Calvin wrote, Let me say something on fasting, because many for want of knowing its usefulness undervalue its necessity. And so since Jesus included it in the Sermon on the Mount, then it is important enough for us to consider the subject. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning in verse number 16, where we left off last time. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Now, though this is not a prominent subject in the Bible, the Bible does give us instruction about fasting and examples of fasting. There was one fast that was commanded, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Now, the law says on the Day of Atonement, it is forbidden to eat or to drink or to bathe or to anoint oneself or to wear sandals, or to indulge in conjugal intercourse. There was one fast that was commanded, that is on the Day of Atonement, but there were other fasts that were observed. 
Jason Cole wrote, There were four more Jewish fasts instituted in Babylon, and they had 28 voluntary fasts. So there are many examples of fasts throughout the Bible. For instance, they fasted during times of national repentance. When the nation of Israel had gone into sin, they had gone away from God, they had become involved in idolatry, it was not unusual during those times for them to fast. As a matter of fact, that is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. It said, And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Now, folks, that was a nation dealing with their sin. They had gone into idolatry and they are confessing their sin to God. In their confession to God, they also Fasted. That was one of the times they fasted. They fasted during times of grief. There was a battle between Israel and Benjamin in which 40,000 men were killed. It was a great time of national grief. And because of the grief that was on their heart, the Bible says that they fasted in Judges chapter 20, verse 26. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. So this is a time of grief in the history of Israel. Forty thousand people had been killed in this battle, in this war. Because they are grieved, the Bible says, that they came to the Lord and they fasted. They also fasted during times of personal grief. You, I'm sure, know the story of David's son. David had a son who was sick, and because the boy was ill, David prayed. He prayed for the boy, and the Bible says that he fasted. The Scripture says, David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted. He was brokenhearted, grieved about the condition of his son. And in response to that, the Bible says that he prayed and he fasted. Throughout the Scripture, there are examples of those people who desired to know God's will, and they fasted. Paul and Silas, for instance, were seeking to know God's will concerning elders that they were going to appoint in the churches. And the Bible says that they fasted and they prayed. Sometimes people fast in order to overcome some temptation with which they are dealing. I think that Steve was when he called us to prayer earlier, and he's talking about, is there anything that God has, has put on your heart, maybe some sin of which you need to ask for forgiveness? You see, whenever we get serious, folks, about sin in our life, then we are going to deal with sin in our life. When it becomes comfortable to us, then we will not deal with it. Because of their sin and because of temptation, sometimes people fast. Knowing that there's temptation there, Jesus did. When he was in the wilderness and Satan was tempting him, the Bible says that he fasted. Another reason that people fast sometimes is because they have a hunger for God. Let me ask you a question. Now, you all look nice this morning. You all got up, you got ready to come to church, you put on your best and you're here. But let me ask you a question. Do you have a real hunger for God in your heart? Not, not just for a religious hour where people come together. Do you have a real hunger for God in your heart? 
John Piper wrote, There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, This much, O God, I want you. Do you have that kind of hunger for God? Not just religion. But I want to know you, God. Such a hunger for God that I'm willing to deprive my physical hunger for spiritual fulfillment. You see, there are those who have hunger, hungered for God to such an extent that they fasted because, God, I want to know you. God, I want to know you. I have a hunger in my heart to know you, and that brought about fasting in their life. The Barclay said in Jewish fasting, there were really three main ideas in the minds of men. Three reasons, three ideas in the minds of men concerning fasting. He said, first of all, to draw God's attention. One of the reasons that some people have fasted is, God, I, I need your attention concerning this. Sometimes I'm praying, and perhaps you are like me in this, but I will be praying sometimes, and as I'm praying, honestly, I'll think, Lord, are you really listening? I mean, there's six billion people in the world, and you're listening to a lot of people. Some of them are praying. Many of them are far more committed to you than I. So how can I get God's attention? See, there has always been that. And, and, and to the Jew, one of the things they thought, in order to get God's attention focused on me, then I will fast. And as a result of my fasting, then God will focus His attention on me. The second reason, they said, was to prove penitence. So fasting then confirmed their repentance of sin. You see that in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord... Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. In other words, Lord, I repent of sin to show you that I am sincere in my repentance. Then I fast as well. However, Barclay warned, It is easy to see that there was a danger here for that which was meant to be a proof of repentance could very easily come to be regarded as a substitute for repentance. Fasting is not a substitute for repentance. Repentance stands on its own. But in the Jewish thought, it proved their seriousness about their sin. The third reason, they said, was to focus God's attention on some national concern. In other words, they fasted when the nation faced a situation and they wanted God to become involved in it. Then they would fast to get God's intervention. An example of that would be concerning Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the captives in Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. And one day there were some people from Jerusalem who came and told him about the condition of the city that he loved. They said, the walls are broken down. The temple has not been rebuilt. Everything is in shambles. When Nehemiah heard the, 
the report that was given to him, he was distressed. He was brokenhearted over the city. And so the Bible says in Nehemiah 1.4, Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So when Nehemiah heard about the condition of the land that he loved, the Bible says that he fasted in response to it. God, we need your intervention here. We need your intervention. And fasting was a part of that for him. Another example would be concerning Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat on one occasion saw that he was surrounded, that they were surrounded by these enemy armies. And he fasted in response to get God's involvement. Second Chronicles 20 verse 3 says, And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So there were those three things in their mind. When they fasted, it was for these three purposes. Now, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. There was a woman, Anna, who lived in the temple fasting at the time of the birth of Jesus. And the Bible says, and she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So the point that I'm making to you is that fasting is throughout Scripture. It is throughout our history. The people of God, for various reasons, have always practiced fasting, and Jesus approved it. Here in verse 16, and whenever you fast. So Jesus approved fasting, and in fact, He practiced fasting. The Bible says in Matthew 4, verse 2, And after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. Fasting was a part of the early church, the church in Antioch. The Scripture says, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. John Calvin gave three reasons for fasting. First, to conquer one's sinful nature. Secondly, for prayer and meditation. Thirdly, repentance and confession. So, folks, here's the deal. The Lord expects us to fast. Did you know that? Just as he expects us to, uh, to give alms in verse number 2, when therefore you give alms, you would agree with that, that God expects us to minister. He expects us to pray in verse number 5. And when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, he expects us to pray. And then in verse number 16, and whenever you fast. So he expects us to fast. Now, that brings us to the principle of fasting. The Greek word for fasting means not to eat. Very simply, that's what it means, not to eat. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, What fasting really means, therefore, is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So what does it mean to fast? It means that I abstain from food for spiritual purposes. So Jesus approved fasting, but here he said there is a right way to fast and there is a wrong way to fast. Now that is true with our religious practices. There is a right way and there is a wrong way. Now, what causes our religious exercises to become wrong as far as God is concerned? Well, they become wrong when they are nothing more than an empty ritual without meaning. Whatever your religious practice is, if it is nothing other than an empty ritual, then it loses its power 
and it has no purpose. Now, that's true with prayer in verse number 7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So, Jesus warned when you pray, it is not to be just a ritual that you are fulfilling that you are going through. The same thing is true with fasting. And the Pharisees fasted, but for them it was a ritual that they were fulfilling. When is our religious exercise wrong? When it's an empty ritual. Secondly, when it is an attempt to manipulate God. And the truth is, sometimes we fulfill our religious activity simply for the purpose of trying to manipulate God. That is true with prayer. Let me give you an example. And I've seen this many times. People say, well, you know, God's Word says that we are to pray. God's Word says that God answers prayer. Therefore, I'm going to ask God for this. Now, God, you are to answer my prayer as I have prayed it because your word says that you answer prayer. And it is an attempt to manipulate God. I can give you an example of that. Last night, I watched the first quarter, I guess, of the uh, Denver game. And then I, I, I turned it off. It wasn't looking that good, but I, I had to go to bed and get ready for this morning. So, But when I got in bed, I said, Lord, you know Tim Tebow really loves you. <laughs> and he is really, I mean, I know there are a lot of Christians on both teams. But he, he's out there. People are attacking him, and he is a very visual witness for you. Lord, it would really be good if you would help him win. I know you're not going to want me praying for you after this is over, but but then this morning as I was thinking about now I was probably trying to manipulate God by reminding Him of these things that, as if He didn't know them. But see, sometimes we can use our prayers in a manipulative manner to try to get God to do what we want God to do. Well, we do the same thing with fasting. Sometimes we fast in order to try to manipulate God to get God to do what I want Him to do. And then it becomes wrong. It is, it is a wrong expression of our religion. Another reason that it becomes wrong is when it's designed to call attention to the participant. When, when I am doing what I am doing, and this is important, when I'm doing what I'm doing religiously to call attention to myself, then it becomes wrong. And we see that several times in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse number 2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. In other words, they were giving alms in such a manner that the attention would be focused on them. That's wrong. Verse number 5. When you pray... You are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. In other words, they prayed at the busiest intersection so people would see them praying and know how spiritual they were. No different in fasting in verse number 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Pharisees fasted two days a week. Market days at that time were Monday and Thursday. Now, just guess. Guess what two days they fasted. 
Monday and Thursday. Because the most people would see them at that time. Well, if there's a wrong way to practice our religion, what is the right way? Look at verse number 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Two things I would say to you. In your religious service, be natural. In other words, what I mean by that is don't try to sound spiritual. I listen to some people and that pray and, you know, they get a different voice. I mean, it's, I'm not, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that it seems strange to me. I'm talking with someone and we pray and then I'm looking and say, because they have a different voice. I mean, it's a spiritual voice. Sometimes we like to look spiritual. I, I go to be sometimes, aren't you a preacher? And I said, no, I've just had the flu. <laughs> Folks, don't try to sound spiritual. Don't try to look spiritual. Be spiritual. That's what Jesus is saying. Be who you are. You know, be who you are. God has created you. Be who you are. But if you don't sound like you and you don't look like you, probably people are not going to believe what you're doing is real. So be spiritual. Secondly, religious service is to the Lord, not to be seen by men. That's what he says in verse number 4 concerning alms. If you look, if you look there, he says uh, that you, your alms may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. He says the same thing about prayer. Pr- folks, pr- when I pray, it's not, it's not to you, it's not for you. I, I mean, I pray for you, but it's to God. See, our religious service is to be to God. And so when I give, it is to God. Whenever I pray, it is to God. And when I fast, it is to God. Arthur Pink says, Our one and only concern must be to perform this duty in a manner which is pleasing unto Him. That should be our desire every time we come, every time you sing, every time this choir sings. It should be for one reason. I want to please Him. Every time the orchestra plays, every time I preach, every time we do what we do, it should be for one reason. Lord, I want to please You. It should not be to a performance that we are giving. It should be, God, I want to please You with what I am doing. There's a right way and a wrong way to fast. And then there's the blessing of fasting in verse number 18b. He says, your father who is in secret, your father who sees in secret, will repay you. What are the blessings of fasting? Well, I understand there are physical blessings. One commentator said it would do a great many people a great deal of physical good to practice fasting. And so they say that there is some physical benefit to fasting. There's an emotional blessing. You see, when we fast, then one of the things we do is that we discipline our body, and it, it brings our body under our control, under the control of the Spirit. One of the things that we struggle with today is that our bodies are out of control in our eating, sexually, in, in so many areas of our life. We have allowed our bodies to dominate who we are. 
So when we fast, we're bringing our body under control, self-discipline. It also helps us to conquer habits. Barclay wrote, if we, and, and I like this, if we practiced a wise fasting, no pleasure would become a chain and no habit would become a master. When we fast, we learn that we don't have to have some things that others say we must. You know, the world tells us all these things we have to have. But when we discipline ourselves and we practice fasting, then we are learning that there are some things we don't have to have that the world says we must. There are also spiritual blessings. When one fasts, it brings that person closer to God. I, I think one of the reasons for that is because as you have hunger pangs, it reminds you as to what you're doing. Every time you have a hunger pain, it reminds you that you are fasting unto the Lord, and then it leads you to prayer. So I think that fasting then can bring you closer to God, and somehow it releases the power of God in your life. Now, I really don't understand all of that, but I believe it, that it releases the power of God in your life. You remember when, when the man brought his son to Jesus who was demon-possessed, and they tried to cast the demon out of the boy but could not and they went to Jesus asking the question why could we not do that and Jesus says this comes forth by nothing but prayer and fasting I really believe that if we practice fasting and that's that's between you and the Lord but as we practice fasting that it draws us closer to God and it gives us power now let me conclude real quickly because I think that we need to reconsider the subject and I'll tell you why Fasting has always been a part of revival. It's always been a part of revival. You recall when Jonah went to Nineveh and preached the gospel, the Bible says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And God sent a revival. So the Bible says that they... They declared a fast and God sent revival. Then there's the Great Awakening, the revival of New England. Jonathan Edwards prayed and fasted for three days and then he preached and God sent the Great Awakening. I think that most of you at least would agree with me and share my concern and burden that our country desperately needs revival. Folks, it's easy for us to say, well, no, what we need is this candidate elected as president or that candidate elected as president. Let me tell you something. If we don't have a fresh move of God in our country, it's not going to matter a lot who's elected as president. We really need the touch of God. In fact, I was reading that in 1990, 86% of adults in this country's declared themselves to be Christians. In 2008, 76% of adults in this country said they were Christians. We're losing this battle. And we're going to lose it unless we have a move of God. We're losing our country as I knew it growing up and as many of you knew it growing up. And we're going to lose it if we don't have a move of God. Arthur Pink said, God sets no value on fasting unless it is accompanied with a corresponding disposition of heart, a real displeasure against sin, sincere self-abhorrence, true humiliation, and unfeigned 
grief. I believe that when the people of God become broken over sin and we turn to God, then God can send revival. And we need revival more than we need anything else. Our gracious Father, I think all of us would probably say that we are aware of the condition of the country, the needs that we are facing. And yet so often we do nothing about it. Lord, we would acknowledge and agree that we need a revival, and yet in our own lives we don't seek one. Forgive us. And Father, I pray that you'll break our hearts, that we might see this land that we love as you see it. And Lord, that we might be salt and light in our world, that we might shine the light of Jesus, that we might be a preservative. I pray in Christ's name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand, sing a hymn of invitation. But folks, we can talk about all this. It's not a mass response. It's an individual response. What's God saying to your heart? What does He want you to do? And perhaps today there are some of you who just need to come and kneel at the altar and say, God, here am I. Use me. I want to be salt. I want to be light. If that's what you want to do, then you come and do that. Just kneel and make that commitment to, to God. Just you and God, just make that commitment. There's some of you who never trusted Jesus, the invitations that you might receive Him. Some looking for a church home, we'd love to have you at First Baptist. God's leading you, you come. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand. The choir sings as they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.